собой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. You can help support the podcast by going to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to the podcast website seansrussiablog.org and click on the Patreon donate button and join the Table of Ranks. Soviet journalism is a tricky subject. On the one hand, Soviet newspapers were a main vehicle for transmitting state propaganda, and journalists were restricted on what they could say and how they could say it. On the other hand, anyone who has read Soviet newspapers knows that it wasn't that simple. Despite their limits, readers could still gleam important information, and at times, journalists addressed readers' grievances. So what was the role of journalism in Soviet society? What were the ethical principles that guided its journalists? And what was lost and gained with the collapse of the Soviet system and the privatization of journalism? I turn to Natalia Rudakova for some insight. Natalia Rudakova is a cultural anthropologist working in the field of political communication and comparative media studies. She has worked as an assistant professor at the Department of Communication at the University of California in San Diego and is now a visiting scholar in the Media and Communication Department at Erasmus University in Rotterdam. She's the author of Losing Pravda, Ethics and the Press in Post-Truth Russia, published by Cambridge University Press. Here's Natalia Rudakova. Your book's title, Losing Pravda, has a double meaning, it, it seems to me. And, and on the one hand, it refers, it refers to the loss of the newspaper Pravda, and, and that can be seen as a metaphor of the Soviet Union in general. And, but on the other hand, it also refers to the loss of truth. So what are you trying to say with this double meaning of uh, your book's title? Well, like any book title, clever book title, that is supposed to simply kind of attract attention and not have a huge amount in it. But the the first meaning is pretty obvious about the loss of a newspaper. Uh, the second meaning is about the loss of the need to seek truth, uh, the loss of the value of uh, seeking truth and telling it to others. That I am arguing has occurred in Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union. So it's that double meaning that I'm going after the cultural kind of diminution of the value of seeking and telling truth to others, especially seeking and telling truth uh, to the face of power. I mean, this, this you know, a, a reader might find this quite ironic because, or strange, because usually truth-seeking isn't usually associated with Soviet journalism. So... And, and this is one of the things that your book begins with is this theoretical discussion of, you know, the problematic of truth in general in the Soviet Union, but also how we understand it more generally. And, and you asked, you asked the reader to see truth not as kind of a binary of true and false, but as an ethic or as a virtue and even an expression of sincerity. So what do you mean by this 
ethical approach to truth in the Soviet context? Right. As I have it in the introduction somewhere, any book that claims to have some, the term Pravda in the title or truth in the title has to address the question of the moral balance of the entire Soviet order. And so that is the big question that I raise. I am interested in approaching truth as a social product, uh, and uh, above all. And, and by that, I mean that it's something that is produced together by people, uh, something that uh, has a big element of power to it, but is not reduced to it. So I go, I simultaneously go with Foucault and beyond uh, some of his more uh, classic statements on the relationship between truth and power, so I think of truth-telling as a social activity, meaning that truth-tellers need to be socially recognized as such, that there are certain criteria, tacit, very tacit criteria. And so I use a lot of different kinds of theories about what does it mean to be tacit or um, in the communication, uh, what does it mean to be non-direct, what does it mean to signal something uh, without explicitly saying it. To the extent that uh, this place or space of truth exists, uh, it exists as a social practice uh, uh, recognized as such. And I uh, claim in the book that uh, there was such a space in the Soviet Union. Uh, in particular, it was occupied by, uh, by the practice around journalism. Can you give an example of like how a Soviet journalist works with the issue of truth? Yeah, I give a, a pretty extensive example of um, the, somebody named Yuri Shikachihin, a very well-known Soviet journalist and then Russian journalist um, and parliamentarian, for instance. He worked for the newspaper called Literaturnaya Gazeta um, toward the, the end of the Soviet period. Uh, where he was known as um, their most brave and their most um, courageous and honest uh, and hardworking investigative journalist. So um, a lot of the writing, a lot of the essays that he has written, and he wasn't by far the only one in the entire Soviet Union, but he was just perhaps one of the better known investigative journalists in, the, in Soviet Russia. He very much went after um, a lot of cases of uh, corruption in the uh, Soviet uh, government bureaucracies, very much acting on signals from below, as we know them from uh, historian, uh, historical work that has been done. Uh, um, so uh, there's been a fair number of Cases of whistleblowing in the Soviet Union that I discuss, and especially Literaturna Gazeta was known for um, as a place where people could turn to with uh, a case of whistleblowing. So he would take that up and he would work for months uh, on an essay investigating uh, an issue, uh, sometimes uh, a moral, uh, morally reprehensible behavior by officials sometimes an illegal behavior by officials. Not every story would be published. Uh, in fact, more stories would be left unpublished or uh, never even written. But the journalist 
will have done the necessary legwork and follow-ups in order to try to correct the injustice that was served. This is really interesting, and this goes to the role that the Soviet journalism or the Soviet journalists played within the system, within the society, because most people are general kind of understanding. And I think this is something that you're, you're giving a, a good challenge to. And that is that journalism is just kind of the place for propaganda, right? Um, but you have these amazing stories of, of journalists actually being the voice in many cases, of the population, of these whistleblowers. So what is the role of the press within the Soviet Union? As I see it, uh, the most important way to think of it is that the Soviet press was part and parcel of the governing mechanism of Soviet society. But then governing needs to be rethought a little bit and understood as an actual practice, as opposed to a top-down um, relay of totalitarian tendencies uh, of uh, some leaders. So clearly, one very, very important role that I don't address much at all in the book, uh, because it has been addressed a thousand times elsewhere, is uh, the role of um, representing the Soviet society, uh, and, or rather the Soviet power to itself. So the propaganda role, what um, German philosopher Jürgen Habermas calls representative publicity, kind of like um, showing to the king and to the court how great their dominion is, so to speak. <laughs> so that's one very important part, uh, but it was not the only thing that was going on in the Soviet press. And I argue that, uh, I go even as far as to argue that it wasn't even the main thing in the Soviet press, or at least it wasn't the main thing that the Soviet press was uh, respected for and uh, read and uh, looked forward to uh, as far as uh, actual specific authors uh, is concerned, their, their particular representations. So uh, the other way, the, the other very big role, um, in addition to the propaganda or uh, representative publicity in harmonizing terms, is simply providing a very imperfect, but nevertheless, uh, check on power, an accountability role in the Soviet uh, system, which uh, which was very much uh, the uh, pretty the press was pretty much the only institution of accountability in the absence of uh, fair, free elections, in the absence of a robust legal system, so where citizens could turn uh, with their grievances. So the press was it. Yeah, you 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 discuss it in some really interesting terms. That you you speak about the Soviet press as you know a crucial institution for legitimacy, uh, and, and in the Soviet system, it, it's kind of the guardian of the the territory of the sacred, and it's there to maintain like a high moral bar of the Soviet system. So so what do you? It, it's it's interesting that it's it you discuss it in. In ethical terms, right? You discuss it in these terms of like, n not just in terms of legitimacy, but holding up the the like I said, the moral bar. So, what what does this mean in the practice of of journalists? How did they understand their role? This was very very important, and uh, in the Soviet Union, and uh, this is a crucial thing that disappears with the fall of the Soviet Union, which is this sense that the Soviet authorities could not be seen, could not be publicly seen 
as disregarding, openly disregarding its own moral precepts, if you will. And the press was there, and it was meant to be there in that function to hold up the institution of state socialism, the moral component of it, if you will, um, to hold it up publicly and to remind people regularly that there is uh, some honesty to what we're doing, there is some integrity and some value to what we're doing collectively as a society. And I argue that without that function, if you will, there, uh, it's basically the, the role uh, that religion plays in uh, uh, many other uh, pre-modern societies, perhaps, but that, that, that might be a little bit uh, big statement to make, but nevertheless, I'll leave it there. Um, without that, the Soviet political order and cultural and social order would not have lasted, I deeply believe as long as it did, uh, without that need to periodically uh, and publicly reaffirm that what we are doing together, and by we I mean uh, both the authorities, the press, and the citizens, that what they're doing is meaningful and uh, valued. And, and now, as you said, the, you know, journalists are working, of course, in a, an authoritarian system. Um, they are working with a lot of restrictions. Sometimes they produce, they do investigative journalism and the articles aren't published. So how did a journalist work the system of formal and informal restrictions to do their, to do their job, to fulfill this ethical role? I talk about the different levels at which the work of an investigative journalist or simply a reporter, of which there are very few in the Soviet Union, just because it was, not a genre of journalism that was developed for a number of reasons. There were di- many different ways that the work of the journalists were was restricted in the Soviet Union. One was, of course, the fact that there existed formal censorship, meaning that there were there was a prescribed list of topics that journalists could never officially raise and uh, had to be on the on guard for. But um, that list was uh, limited. Um, one could look it up, <laughs> what was actually in that list. Uh, the Glavlit um, uh, bureaucracy was in charge of maintaining that list. And uh, the other reasons or ways that uh, the work of a journalist is difficult is simply uh, in uh, because there was very little, uh, few chances for journalists to maintain the kind of legwork that Western reporters maintain to um, have uh, regular contacts with um, various kinds of city and different regional and federal authorities on um, what is going on in schools, what is going on in prisons, what is going on in uh, courts, what is going on in the health system, and so forth. So there wasn't a whole lot of official information that was released. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. And, and for journalists to work with. There was no Freedom of Information Act requests, obviously. There were also a, a explicit and implicit understandings that one cannot raise a criticism of the entire Soviet order. One cannot make uh, sweeping statements about um, the legitimacy of the Soviet 
political undertaking. One cannot criticize the party uh, in, uh, uh, especially uh, on the levels um, equal to or above the level at which a particular newspaper was situated, and there was a hierarchy of the old newspapers in the Soviet Union. Um, so um, one could criticize uh, officials down that hierarchy, but not up that hierarchy. So lots of different restrictions. However, beyond those restrictions, there was still a huge area within which journalists could work. Though I give examples of how Komsomolska uh, Pravda, for instance, another well-known Soviet newspaper, uh, would work with readers' letters, for instance, of which there were um, tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands per year. And uh, they would, uh, in not only letters, but personal visits to offices, newspaper, uh, uh, phone calls to the newspaper, and so forth. And uh, the uh, journalists worked with uh, uh, all kinds of complaints uh, and grievances that were coming in, uh, like the state uh, promised an apartment and didn't guarantee it, the state promised a spot in the kindergarten, didn't do it, the state... Um, uh, uh, issued a legal uh, um, decision that was unjust. Uh, the state made botched something or other, and the citizen was paying for it. Uh, there's all kinds of ways that uh, citizens were left uh, given the short end of the stick in the Soviet Union, and so they felt that's they're the most important part. They felt like they could turn to the press, uh, and the press would stand up for them. It's not necessarily by publishing something, but by going behind the scenes, calling on the phone to officials and so on. This is what was re is one of the kind of amazing things about your story, and, and that is that readers just flooding newspaper offices with letters, with phone calls, sometimes showing up. Um, and this is a really interesting kind of political cultural phenomenon um, and, and I think it's important, as you said, that, that it's not necessarily about the journalist, say, publishing an article, but getting on the phone and going behind the scenes and advocating for some of these people's, um, you know, grievances. So how do you understand this, this kind of culture from the reader's perspective? Well, I mean, you know, this is a very active thing to like physically show up at a newspaper and say, Hey, <laughs> you know, do something about this. Yeah, I was lucky to study that process from a local end of things. I, my fieldwork was based in Nizhny Novgorod, what was known as Gorky at the time in the Soviet period. And they had a newspaper called Leninskaya Smena that was modeled to a large extent on Kamsamuska Pravda and oftentimes thought itself in actual competition with Kamsamuska Pravda. The journalists who worked there were uh, very feisty. Uh, I have talked to many of them uh, uh, over the years, and I have worked side by side with many of them because, uh, in the 2000s because many of them have gone on to start um, their own publishing houses in Nizhny Novgorod. So uh, they would describe to me the atmosphere of those uh, offices, and then I went to the archives and uh, looked at what it looked like from the readers. And there, um, yeah, they, there was, 
Uh, it was a youth newspaper, as many uh, listeners w- might recognize uh, from the title. Uh, and so as a result, um, the kinds of grievances um, this people brought were often about student uh, life or school life or uh, uh, those, uh, work in those uh, labor brigades uh, in the summer, Stroya uh, Triade, those those kind of, kinds of uh, work study arrangements in the summer for students, sometimes those would be botched and needed help. But uh, to a large extent, uh, Leninska Smena was also a place where people just went to hang out and, <laughs> and to learn how to write because uh, that's uh, the, the journalists uh, had the obligation to work with young people and helping them how to learn to write. So there was a, a school of uh, youth correspondence that was um, uh, basically run by the newspaper every year. They would uh, graduate people uh, from it and teach people basics, basics of journalism. They would have, uh, uh, every uh, week they would have meetings of uh like one day it was school correspondence, another day it was university level um, correspondence and uh, uh, school meaning high school and even middle school initially. Another day they would meet a young caricaturist club, so people who like to draw cartoons would meet. Uh, another day film lovers club, people would meet there. So um, oftentimes uh, the newspaper would hold so-called which is uh, editorial meetings held in public. Uh, yeah, they would do that in uh, uh, big um, halls, uh, you know, basically dvarci kultury, where uh, these palaces of culture, where people would gather and the newspaper uh, editors and journalists would talk about what it is like to run a newspaper, to write uh, and what kinds of issues are, are addressed. And the, and news, uh, these Leninskaya journalists were very, very uh, keen on feedback from readers. That's kind of the biggest thing that I was surprised by and pleased by. They kept asking uh, for feedback. They had a, a live phone-in line every week where, where they would just take in calls. Uh, they would sometimes serve as uh, search engines, uh, basically, for <laughs> readers to find how do you find a job, how do you fix, you know, something uh, in your house, uh, all kinds of information about it. So the Soviet Union, of course, collapses, censorship ends uh, in, you know, the late 80s, and then the system collapses. So how did the the end of this ethical system, these various practices of Soviet journalism change? That's a very dramatic story, if not to say tragic, uh, in the end. It's a combination of multiple factors that initially brings about a very a very big high to um, Soviet journalism. So late 80s, the Perestroika years, the Gorbachev years, the Glasnost years are precisely the years when that spirit of public-oriented truth-seeking that I argue was at the core of Soviet journalism, if not Soviet propaganda, which I argue are two different activities, um, although 
you're not 100% too different, uh, different, but still um, very distinct. When that spirit uh, kind of starts to 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 unfold and to take full shape for a pretty brief period, so late 80s to very early 90s, there is a moment when the Soviet press is still funded by the government, but it is no longer controlled by it at all. So that becomes this incredible moment, which in German, I think, is known, and in East German journalism is known as Die Wende. So this period when uh, it's this incredible moment when journalists come into full, um, kind of, into their full role of societal kind of telos setters, as they call them. So people who are, uh, who are responsible, who feel themselves responsible for the direction in which the country uh, is going to go. And so they, um, as the archives open up, as topics that uh, couldn't be written about now uh, become available to be written about, um, as, uh, as many journalists run for office in uh, the new uh, elections to the R- Russian uh, representative uh, branch of government, there is this incredible kind of high um, going on. And so many different journalists open uh, their own newspapers. Um, Many start to uh, try to open their television stations, radio stations. Um, But uh, the number of newspapers especially proliferates very fast. However, as we all know in the field, the end of the Soviet Union and the beginning of neoliberal reforms in the 90s are accompanied by a very, very deep and profound economic crisis when uh, the, there is simply no currency to be collected, a hyperinflation too, so no, uh, there is no uh, money in the budget, there is no money that businesses have to spend on advertising, there is no money that citizens have to pay for these outlets. Um, and so at that very high moment when lots of journalists are wanting to start their own enterprises, to be these um, kinds of um, beacons of public uh, thought and opinion, uh, they end up without money. So as I uh, kind of track the beginning of, of this process of corruption in journalism, um, that is what begins to happen. Is what do you do when you have no money but you want to uh, continue to do what you're doing. You start to look for money. And that concern for money becomes all, all powerful. And there's some of it, I, I will never forget that one phrase that one journalist told me, which said, uh, in the Soviet Union, we were taught not to talk about money and not to think about money. We were taught not to do that. And now we have to think about money all the time. And so clearly that's that's when things start to unravel professionally for journalism as I start to track it. Also, too, you, you note that this, of course, had a profound impact on this ethics of, of truth-seeking and truth-telling, so much so that you, by the early 2000s, you speak of a kind of cynical zeitgeist over the profession. So what was that about in terms of the, the ethics of journalism and then the, the kind of setting of this cynical era? 
The setting of the cynical era actually happens fairly quickly. I start to see the beginnings of it in 9394. That's when I track it down to, back to, um, through the sources from Nizhinogorod that I have. Many journalists from the Soviet period simply could not go on in this atmosphere of having to constantly look for money. Others, though, kept thinking, that's all right, um, I can I can make some compromises, but not others, because some, some of them have simply told me, I don't know what else to do. I don't want to do advertising. I don't want to, I don't know, learn another profession. I love journalism. That is what I do. And now is the new time, so I'm just going to figure out how to kind of stay, you know, as true to myself as I can in this ever-present, uh, under this ever-present pressure of uh, this search for money. And the search for money often meant on the part of uh, media managers, the search for political sponsorship, because oftentimes uh, money came during election campaigns, or for the majority of cases. That's what they call strada this uh, period when uh, it's like a harvest time, when every electoral campaign brought money, and then in between they had nothing to, and that they lived off of whatever money Ananisa was made during that election campaign. So some people simply couldn't do it. Uh, and other, others stayed in it, and still many, many others came into the profession, young people usually, um, without having had any of that previous training in Soviet journalism, and hence, without that commitment that uh, to truth-seeking at the core of the profession that was trained into journalism, into Soviet journalists over the decades of mentorship and peer control over quality of what counted as good journalism and so forth. So um, when readers would and viewers would be um, consuming news and, and trying to make sense of what was going on in the 1990s. Already in 1993-94, from the sources that I have, I see that the uh, readers and viewers are starting to question the sincerity this, uh, and the, uh, the, the honesty with which journalists work. They, uh, it doesn't take very much for a reader or a viewer to start to smell something is fishy when uh, all of a sudden the a kind of coverage of politics that they're used to uh, starts to change in subtle and sometimes not so subtle ways. So that's when I think the cynical zeitgeist starts to take place and then it accelerates through the so-called wars of compromise which were well, uh, which were at its height uh, when um, the modern oligarchy was being formed in in Russia. So the um, mid 90s, late 90s, and early 2000s, and then uh, towards the end of the book, I look into the situation where the cynical the cynical zeitgeist is permeating and all spheres of life, uh, including. Um, entertainment media and including the kinds of state public statements that um, public officials make, starting with Putin and all the way down. But there, there is some hope because, you know, since really 2011, 2012, 
Um, you, you do see a growing cadre of, you know, dedicated, very good young journalists who are, who are working and doing some fabulous work. Um, so how do you understand the current state of the ethics of Russian journalism amongst this new cadre? I think things today in 2018 are a lot clearer, ethically, morally speaking, in Russian journalism than they were even in um, 2013, 2014. Um, yeah, uh, basically, I talk about uh, the long 2000s as kind of the most cynical period um, in uh, contemporary Russian history, uh, where it seemed like there was no hope <laughs> for any kind of revival of the spirit of truth-seeking and selling. The mass protests of 2011-2012 that I ended up... Uh, taking some part in uh, and doing some kind of accidental field work um, during that time uh, convinced me otherwise. Um, I do rely for my thinking and cynicism a lot on the German philosopher Peter Sloterdijk's uh, thinking or theorizing on it. And uh, he talks about how modern cynicism is a very, very multi-layered phenomenon, and it's, it has that passive component when we withdraw from politics, when we give up on it, or when we um, turn away, when we become apathetic. But then, he says, only those people who have once been enchanted can be disenchanted. So at the heart of cynicism, he says, there's always a little um, kernel of uh, idealism or truth-seeking in it, and it gets activated in his theorizing uh, by um, exorbitant disinhibition, cynical disinhibition of the powerful. And uh, I am starting to see that there is that kind of double tension or a double process going on related to that. On the one hand, the officials in Russia uh, are... Uh, increasingly good at showing to everybody that they don't, they're just in the business of uh, governing and, uh, or rather in the business of governing the country as if it were the private fiat, uh, that they do not care about citizens, that they do not care about um, um, the notions of justice. Um, but on the, and the more they do so, it seems, the more there is uh, an understanding, among, especially among the young, but I, I don't think only the young, uh, that maybe enough is enough. There's this sense that, okay, um, you, <laughs> uh, you I, can't, I can't remember the Russian saying now, something like that. So, so you can't, if you have power, you know, use it wisely, but if you start to overuse it, then you're going you're gonna to see some backlash. Now, you know, you uh, just uh, from being in the United States for a while, and of course now with uh, a lot of talk about disinformation and fake news, 
um, you know, being part of kind of American, in particular, public discourse. And of course, there's a growing industry of, um, you know, apparatuses for identifying fake disinformation, particularly coming from Russia. I think, in fact, the Congress has just put forward a bill to create some sort of something, a law about interference in elections. The FBI is creating some apparatus for identifying Russian disinformation. Um, having looked at Russian journalism, um, you know, this long, this history of it over the last, you know, 40 plus years. How do you understand this, this image of, of Russia, um, in light of your research? Well, the notion of disinformation supposedly, and I don't know for sure, stems from uh, the Soviet security services back in the day when there was disinformation, when there was, um, a, a way that, that when the, it was part of an effort to um, character assassinate somebody basically uh, who was not um, up to snuff <laughs> according to the authorities so um, and even it's uh, if there's an even earlier uh, um, technology of it I think um, they call it psychological warfare back from the early Cold War period. So um, it's not... So disinformation, compromising information, uh, character assassination, it's really not super Russian technology in that sense that it it belongs to uh, an arsenal of Cold War uh, techniques and uh, both sides of the Cold War used it. Now, the character assassination pieces in the Russian press, uh, Kompromat, as we know it, that was appearing in the 1990s especially, those wars of Kompromat, that was um, that was especially serious in Russia compared to uh, Eastern Europe, for instance, in Eastern Europe the, those particular, that particular genre of writing is known as Kompromat by the Russian world, and now it's known in the United States by the Russian world. Right? So, uh, that is what it, what, that's what it seems to me, it's, uh, it's origins. Um, as to whether good fact checking is going to stop compromise from happening, uh, whether, um, the solution to fake news is real news, um, the kind of work that I've done has this to say to that. Because I turn to, because I think of uh, truth as a collective product, as a social product, as something that people, that is created in public by many different people, is contested continuously, um, but something that relies on the efforts of people who claim to uh, aim at truth, as philosophers say it, through sincerity, through courage, through accuracy, through fairness through thoroughness, through being reflexive about what they do, uh, through um, standing by their words, all of those kind of qualities of truth seekers uh, that um, we as as a society uh, know or learn uh, tacitly how to recognize, we we need uh, those qualities and those kinds of actions. Uh, from people in the public sphere, um, 
in order to uh, believe them. So um, a simple refutation of uh, somebody said this, but it's not true, is not quite going to do it uh, in, for the listener or for the viewer or for the audience member to go after that public speaker who is doing the refutation. Uh, a public speaker, and by that I mean intellectuals, journalists, politicians, uh, um, anybody who kind of takes a public stage, uh, these people need to offer um, a vision of a future to people um, listening to them um, and a vision of who they are to have the right to speak about that future and uh, a vision of themselves as uh, um somebody who cares and somebody who has a certain kind of moral integrity and moral standing to do that. Now, there is never any, you know, clear-cut set of criteria by which a certain person is going to be 100% judged as a true filler or a true seeker in that kind of uh, situation. We can only, you know, lay out these criteria, and that's why philosophers say people aim at truth when they speak, but whether they get there or not is already a question of uptake, as uh, uh, John Austin would would call it, the, the philosopher of language that I use um, a lot in, in the work. And finally, um, what can today's journalists in Russia learn from their Soviet forefathers? One of the things that went out the window really quickly. I remember seeing it in the newspapers of the early 1990s. Is this is the concern for the reader and viewer themselves. So I remember seeing uh, very uh, something like this. The newspaper finally no longer has to answer every letter and every phone call, and we consider this as a certain kind of freedom of the press. So uh, that was very, very informative to see that um, freedom of the press for some in the early 90s was freedom from the reader and from the responsibilities to the reader that the Soviet system had instilled in journalists. So uh, this kind of deep connection to readers and viewers and audience members uh, is, I think, a very, very telling, uh, a, a telling, a tell, a tell mark. I don't know, a, a, an important, a crucial component of what Soviet journalism was about. And I think in today's world, when trust in media is at such a premium, uh, it's that kind of looking out for the reader's interest, for the public interest, really, is what um, today's journalists could probably take away most. That was Natalia Rudakova, a visiting scholar in the Media and Communication Department at Erasmus University in, in Rotterdam. She's the author of Losing Pravda, Ethics and the Press in Post-Truth Russia, published by Cambridge University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap 
but it's not free to make, you can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my Ahai Excellencies, High Wellborns, and Noblenesses for your continued patronage. And you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye! <laughs>